Good evening. Let me start by really thanking the organizers for inviting me this evening. It is indeed an honor to be here. Um, I must confess that when I landed on Friday, I wanted to go back into the airport. Um, the immigration officer told me I was headed in the wrong direction, and, and I, I kind of agreed with him. But, but I really want to thank especially Dario, um, Miller, Pablo, and Gigi for all the warmth I've received in Connecticut. I, I am much warmer now, and, and I'm glad I stayed. I want to get into the meat of the lecture, but I want to start with talking a bit about myself and how I got into this topic. Oh, my research is on enslavement systems in the Caribbean, and I, I, a lot of it is based on plantation papers. Now, I first visited this campus about a year ago. I was with a team from UE, and we were here to think about how we could develop the Trinity in Trinidad program. And you may know that this brings students from Trinity College to St. Augustine campus and brings our students to your campus. When I was invited to do this guest lecture, I immediately began to, began to think of how could I connect my research to Connecticut, because I think you need to talk to people about things that they can identify with. And uh, it was easier than I expected. And historians would understand it. It's amazing when you begin to connect things in your mind, what, what you come up with. And at that point, I remembered that I came across references to Connecticut in manuscripts dealing with the Caribbean. And, and I could see it in my mind. I could see Connecticut written in that old, old handwriting. So I became convinced, at least, that our communities were connected centuries ago. I started to do some research, and I, I was surprised to discover, and I must admit, that there were so many Caribbean people in Connecticut. I had no idea that Connecticut was estimated to have the third largest Caribbean population after New York and Miami. That shocked me. And, and I couldn't have feeling that there had to be a deeper cause. You know, it, it um, originated, okay, proximity to New York. But, but instinctively, the historian in my mind said, Heather, that Connecticut in plantation papers and, and this large percentage of Caribbean people, there had to be some kind of connection. So my next step was to try and detail some of the links and to explore the possibilities that board communities may possess characteristics today which come out of the circumstances of the 18th century. As suggested by another Trinidadian, Tony Hall, I want to plant the seed this evening that we, and when I say we, I mean the Caribbean, I mean Connecticut, that we are connected in a cultural matrix which grew out of historical circumstances that connected our two communities. So this evening, therefore, I want to ask you to start to think about what can connect my islands in the Caribbean Sea and Connecticut. That's essentially what we want to do. Now, I need to set the economic context carefully. And, and this was another interesting and exciting thing to me. It led me straight back to the person considered to be the founding father of Trinidad and Tobago, our first prime minister, Dr. Eric Williams. 
He's known for his iconic work, Capitalism, Capitalism and Slavery. And one of the themes he develops in this work is the relationship between North America and the Caribbean. And surprisingly, when I took him up again, he also mentions Connecticut as he develops that relationship. For Williams, therefore, we were sister colonies, British colonies in North America and British colonies in the Caribbean, he describes as sisters. He describes them as growing up together, fighting, that's a natural part of the relationship, but contributing to each other's development and economic prosperity. That really got me thinking. Now, the economic philosophy of the 18th century, the 17th century, could go back even further, was that of mercantilism, and I want you to remember that. Simply, mercantilism meant that colonies were developed for the benefit of the mother country. That is not surprising. We expect it. But mercantilism also involved restricted trade, monopoly, because it is essential to ensure that all the money went back to Britain. It is important to remember that in this discussion, the only legal trade was trade with Britain or trade with a British colony. Now remember, the North American colonies, most of them are also British colonies. The other dimension that I think is important to understand um, what developed, and this may be harder for you to, to grasp, is the sugar frenzy that took hold of the Caribbean region. Some people talk about a sugar fever, and it was a fever in every sense of the word. The Caribbean colonies were developed for exploitation. They became machines. Machines to produce sugar with the most brutal and intensive systems. Plantations exploited land and exploited enslaved Africans to make this possible. Now imagine we are at the height of the sugar revolution and there is so much money to be made that it did not make sense to grow anything except sugar. Forget about growing food. If you have an acre of land planted with sugar, you would get so much money that you could buy much more food than you needed. So all the land in the Caribbean was used to produce sugar. And the Caribbean had to depend on external sources for their food supplies. Now remember, North America is close by, and that would be a legal trade. I want to quote from Williams. He maintains that only the possession of the mainland colonies in North America per permitted the sugar monopoly of the West Indian soil. Only the possession of the mainland colonies in North America permitted the sugar monopoly of the West Indian soil. Britain allowed its North American colonies to be the source of the supplies needed in the Caribbean. They were also British. It was therefore a leader, le uh, legal trade, and Britain was happy to abdicate its responsibility. Thus, the mixed husbandry in North America and um, in the colonies there supplemented the specialized agriculture in the West Indies. The relationship between Connecticut and the Caribbean 
can be thought to have begun as early as the 1650s. Now I want to talk a bit about the Connecticut context. The economic background is set and I think the location of Connecticut did the rest. The proximity to the river is extremely important. Connecticut became a vital point for the shipment of items to and from the Caribbean. The first recorded venture that I have found dates to 1649. Merchants from Weathersfield and Hartford invested in building a small vessel and they called it of all things the trial. This vessel did a trial run, or perhaps you want to call it a trial sail, from Connecticut with foodstuff, lumber, and other supplies, and took these items to Barbados. As time went on, trading links were strengthened with Barbados and St. Kitts. In time, a specialist trade developed, connecting North America and the Caribbean. It is important to note that there were two dimensions to this trade. It did not only involve larger ports that writers tend to focus on. It is true that large vessels serviced Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Charleston. However, large vessels relied on smaller vessels for supplies. The smaller vessels allowed for greater speed and efficiency. The larger vessels usually made that transatlantic voyage only once a year. Smaller vessels could do it as much as 14 times a year. So these smaller vessels connected America's major ports and allowed goods to flow back and forth from North America to the Caribbean. Connecticut's coasters were very active in this area. Now within the second group, there's another group of even smaller vessels that service the needs of the Caribbean directly. These ships were about 40 feet in length. They were described as unglamorous, unsteady, dangerous. They were called horse jockeys because the emphasis was on speed. I want to stress, however, that numerically and economically, they were just as important to maritime history as their more prestigious, popular and glamorous sisters. Involved in this trade was just as much risk and adventure, and there was a lot of money to be made. A system soon evolved. Ship captains worked with several merchants. Two trips were made a year, one after fall, one in spring. The average length of a voyage to the West Indies then was two to five weeks. There was much variation sometimes because of weather, because of the difficulty of the cargo, and I'll tell you about the cargo a little later, because of the reliability of crews, and sometimes because of the likelihood of warfare. These vessels had very large decks, and we would, would be surprised about some of the things that we found on board. However, they were ideal for the trade. The larger vessels were too slow. In the islands themselves, People were connected to Connecticut. They had agents in the islands. They had family members in the islands. They had friends in the islands. And they were responsible for disposing of the cargoes from Connecticut when they arrived. 
The voyages are important in themselves. But to me, the more important thing perhaps is the nature of the trade. Now I really want you to think about it. Food supplies are being exchanged and they're being exchanged for sugar, rum, and molasses. Now sugar is considered to be the luxury item of the day. But in the case of the Caribbean, the sugar is not the important thing. It is the rum and molasses. Why? Because for us, these are waste products. They are of no value to us. The sugar we can easily send to England. The rum and molasses are waste products. So with your waste products, you are getting food for yourselves and more importantly, for the enslaved population. You are getting lumber to build the very hogsheads that you're going to ship your sugar in. So the nature of the trade is very important and it is one of the things that allow the massive profitability. In a sense, trade with North America met all the contingent expenses. So when your sugar went to Britain, that was pure profit. So it really multiplied the profits that could be made in the Caribbean. In the case of North America, the Caribbean provided a very important outlet for their supplies. When you think about it, at that time, New York could not have provided such a market. More important, there were backward and forward linkages which helped develop Connecticut. Work was created for sawmills, for shipbuilders, for shipyard workers, for sail makers, for rope makers, and of course, for farmers. With the increased income earned, British products like tools and domestic goods were purchased. Everyone was happy at this time. The Caribbean is happy, North America happy, Britain is happy. An important development is the development of the distilling industry. Jennifer Frank emphasizes that rum and gin poured from the distilleries of Hartford. Rum was needed for the fur trade, for the fisheries, for naval rations, and most importantly, for the cargo of slave ships. The molasses is coming from the West Indies. The distilling industry is developing in Connecticut. When we think about it even further, we must realize that almost no person could have been left untouched. The connection with the Caribbean indirectly in extended to almost everyone, seamen, carpenters, tradesmen, artisans, the development of services, port facilities, commission services, insurance services. Middletown Custom House records a very active trade between 1790 and 1809 from the Connecticut River Valley to the Caribbean. St. Kitts and Bar Barbados seemed to be the most popular port of call. Several ships also went to Jamaica and later Haiti. Ships had names such like the Polly and Betsy, the Matilda, the James. One of the interesting things I found was the, the, the cargo from the Polly and Betsy in 1795. And I just want to list the items that were in the cargo. Salted beef and pork. Salted fish, again, popular items in the Caribbean up to today. Cheese, 
butter, beans, potato, corns, onions, and apples. We, of course, producing nothing in the Caribbean. We're importing all our food. There were also barrels, starves, hoops, lumber, shingles, oak pines. What surprised me the most, perhaps, is that we have to add live animals to the list. 314 geese, 40 turkeys, 5, when I quote, hogs, 200 sheep, and I noticed there were also some ships that carried cattle, but, but the Betsy did not at the, in this year. Connecticut was the leader in the export of livestock, meat and dairy, cheese, butter, grain, flour, onions, <laughs> tobacco, and lumber. Jennifer, Jennifer Frank notes, and I quote, early in the colonial period, much of Connecticut's produce was shipped out of Rhode Island and Massachusetts. However, after the revolution, Connecticut came to dominate the Caribbean trade more directly. In some years, more than half of its exports went to the French islands, especially Santo Domingo, then the leading sugar producer in the West Indies. In 1731, Governor Joseph Talcott reported that in the entire colony, there were 44 trading vessels. By the eve of the revolution, the number of vessels had quadrupled. The tonnage had increased 20 times. In 1784, almost 100 vessels were launched from shipyards in New London, New Haven, Norwich, Middletown, and Hartford. Bernard Balin mentions that by 1770, New England generally had achieved the highest standard of living in the world. He contends that fortunes were made with the West Indian trade, and this would greatly influence the industrial and financial revolutions which would follow. This line of argument is strongly supported by Eric Williams in Capitalism and Slavery. Now, we're talking about trade, we're talking about the 17th and 18th century. By extension, we are also talking about enslavement. The profits from sugar and enslavement touch many, even the population of Connecticut. The Caribbean and Connecticut were connected not only through trade, but also through the enslavement system. I cannot overstress the point that African enslavement touched all of us, both directly and indirectly. Enslaved persons from the Caribbean even ended up in Connecticut. Sugar, rum, and molasses were the most important products, but it is believed that most of the 5,000 enslaved persons in Connecticut at the time of the Revolutionary War came there through trade with the Caribbean. Enslavement that's contributed to the commercial economy. There were also farms in Connecticut that depended on enslaved labor. Of course, the numbers were smaller than in the Caribbean, but the elements and a parallel enslavement culture must have existed. In fact, Connecticut newspapers followed the events of the Haitian Revolution very closely in 1791. For me, however, in spite of these connections, I think that the single most influential connection between the connect 
between Connecticut and the Caribbean comes from the intangible as opposed to the tangible. I think we share a culture of maritime communities. These are ties that bind and shape our communities in ways we don't fully understand. The sea, and in the case of Connecticut, the river, were important to the development of both communities. This in turn shaped societies which had much in common. Our societies were shaped not just by what was traded and by how much money there was to be made, but by the fact that trade produces a different way of seeing the world. It produces a different ontology. It connects people in ways unthought of. It breeds a spirit of adventure. It engenders a culture, a culture characterized by degrees of difference. It engenders more acceptance. It tends to lead to a challenge of the status quo. Both our societies can be described as having what I call porous boundaries. What flowed across our borders were not only rum, molasses, sugar, food, and lumber. Ideas flowed, individual flows, aesthetics. All of this created what Wolster described as a culture of hybridity. We can start with the very issue of enslavement. The Caribbean economy dictated that maritime slavery would be central to its existence. Enslaved seamen live different lives. I will be honest and say, well, if I had a choice to go back, I would want to be not on a sugar plantation, but I would want to be an enslaved seaman. Enslaved seamen lived qualitatively different lives. Legislators tried, but they couldn't control them. They couldn't control their movement. They couldn't control the nature of their interaction. They couldn't control how much money they really made. One can well imagine, therefore, that from the 17th to the 19th century, black seamen worked in all kinds of vessels which plied the route between the Caribbean and Connecticut. Free blacks, runaway enslaved persons, enslaved persons who had permission from their masters, all of them gravitated towards these trading vessels. They worked in several areas, as sailors, as stewards, as cooks, as cleaners. Wages were higher, there was far more independence, and there was a greater chance of eventually becoming free. I want to introduce you to several persons this evening. One of them is an enslaved person, Venture Smith. And I believe in giving people names because too many, too often, enslaved people become objects. So once I can identify someone and give them a name, I, I try to remember their name and use their name. Venture Smith. He was sold as a child to a slave owner on Fisher's Island, New York. He later earned his freedom and that of his family. He made a profitable trip on a whaler in the 1770s and ended his days as a landowner in Connecticut. This success was due in part to his ownership of small boots. I want to stress that Venti Smith was not the only one to use the sea to advance. During the revolution, many black men served as pirateers and above and on ships in the Navy. The Connecticut and Massachusetts state navies were known for enlisting black sailors. 
such services could sometimes lead to freedom. We also have the example of a marina from Lyme, Connecticut. His name was Prince. Prince turned his privateering proceeds over to his master, Captain John Marcher, and was freed in 1779. We have to insist that maritime in culture produce a different set of impulses. It produced more egalitarian impulses. Now, by no means am I saying that maritime enslavement was colorblind or that it was prejudice-free. Often, however, I think because of the realities of maritime enslavement, if we want to call it the racial etiquette code, was sometimes not followed. Racial boundaries did exist, but they had to be altered in the context of the sea. The context called for different institutions. The sea presented a different practical reality. And I believe in the power of what I call the culture of the sea. Enslaved persons came to constitute 2 to 3% of the population of Connecticut by the late 18th century. They frequently lived in clustered maritime towns. Thus, maritime enslavement greatly influenced the local black society and, by extension, the entire community in Connecticut. The next section I, I have called because of the realities of the 21st century, travel without visas or security checks. Because I think any person traveling in, in, in 2015 and thinking about this and how people moved with all these complications can't help but make that kind of comparison. The culture I'm suggesting was shared by many and affected the character of individuals both in Connecticut and the Caribbean. There worship captains who resided in Connecticut and the Caribbean. Let's meet Captain Nathaniel Howard. In his journal, he said he always brought home items from his visits to other places like the West Indies, and his wife stole them, stole them sorry, from her store. So here we have a ship captain going to the West Indies, but bringing home items which his wife is selling from her store. Meet John Smith of Middletown, Connecticut. He was another sea captain. His papers include references to voyages to Martinique, Antigua, and Trinidad. He owned and captained several vessels, such as Lucy, the Rising Sun, and the Almina. Meet Lucy Farrington, who moved with her husband from Connecticut to Trinidad to engage in trade. Now, this is a sad story because both of them, in fact, died there and never returned. Reading the chronicles of a Connecticut farm, I'm going to quote the authors describing the happy years after the revolution, and they are sitting down to eat. And on the table, we have stores of ham and huge treaters casts of West Indian rum, brandy, and all sorts of West Indian preserves. So even the food and cultural items from the West Indies is becoming part of a table in Connecticut during quote-unquote happy times. I want to suggest this evening that these are not scattered examples. These are not unique people. Each must be seen as representative of a larger group.
thus board goods and people were moving between the Caribbean. Connecticut and the Caribbean were joint. However, in many senses, it was more than this. They now shared a common space, a space that had been created by West Indians who owned property in the Caribbean and Connecticut, and also by those in Connecticut who owned property in the West Indies. They went there for business, they went for pleasure. <coughs> Meet Geddes Charles of Salem, who owned extensive plantations in Barbados and Guyana. His son is going to become the Customs General of Barbados, is going to become a member of the House of Assembly in Barbados, and eventually a member of Council. North Americans soon discovered the value of West Indian sunshine. And for those of you all who have not, I would like to take the opportunity to invite you. It, it is a great experience. West Indian, in turn, traveled to North America to restore what they call their broken constitutions. We must remember the climate here was much similar to what they, to what they knew in Britain. It is said that West Indian heiresses were just as valued in North America as in Britain. In both the West Indies and Connecticut, a wealthy class was created from trade, and they were connected. Williams suggested that, and, and one thing about Williams, he's, he's very sarcastic. So in um, talking about North America and the amount of West Indians that were there, he suggested that um, boarding houses should put up a sign saying, worn out West Indians welcome. And he suggested that a possible name for boarding house could be Barbados House because there were so many planters coming over to North America. Horace Hayden, the father of the dental profession, in his youth made several voyages to the West Indies and engaged in businesses in the West Indies, Connecticut, and New York. Another interesting find for me was Joshua Levinwell a native of Hartford, Connecticut, but he seemed to have very early discovered the joys of spending the winter months in the West Indies. In the late 18th and early 19th century, he was an architect. He built the Hartford Bank with his brother. He built the Center Church. He built the Old State House. But it might surprise many of you to know that he also constructed houses, dissembled them, shipped them to Trinidad, and then spent the month, winter months resembling them in the sunny, warm Caribbean climate. There are several references in his diary. This was clearly not one incident, but a way of life. We should not assume he was alone. Our societies seem to have interacted closely and to have shared a common space on many levels from the 18th century well into the 19th century. It should not be too surprising, therefore, that when labor was needed after the World War, tobacco farm farmers looked to the Caribbean, bringing, after 1947, thousands of Jamaicans and Puerto Ricans to Connecticut. The impact of this is still felt today, and I suspect you all know more about that than I do, but I want to stress that this was the second wave of Caribbean laborers. The first wave would have been enslaved laborers. Such connections continued right into the 21st century, 
right now. In Trinidad and Tobago, the University of Connecticut is leading a multi-phase investigation into the remains of 16 vessels which sunk in 1677. In a real sense, things seem to have come full circle because of this archaeological discovery. It promises to yield much historical information about shipbuilding and maritime culture. Thus, the fact that we are maritime communities, whether through the water, whatever kind of water, river or sea, it seems to keep bringing us together. Another sign that our communities are connected, surprisingly for me, came from the credit union movement. The credit unions in Connecticut and Trinidad have been partnering since 2001 and are working on several projects involving leadership training and new development. Seen in this light, therefore, the fact that Trinity College has developed the Trinity in Trinidad program which explores Caribbean civilization, among other things, seems like a natural progression. For months, students are immersed in Carnival, Parang, Ramlila, and experience what we would call true Trini culture. However, the rich, diverse, unique, multi-ethnic culture of Trinidad and Tobago is built on a foundation that in many ways has been shared with Connecticut. Is it a case of what we would call in Trinidad chickens finally coming home to roost? I have seen students become entirely immersed in our culture, so much so that last year one student played in our national panorama competition. I hope that tonight we may have found just a little piece of the puzzle. The politics, art, history, food, music, religion, and indeed the very ethos of our two communities have evolved from a maritime culture which facilitated movement of peoples from all our colonies, movement of different economic groups, movement even with different degrees of freedom. Most importantly, this facilitated the sharing of ideas and ideologies and created a new sense of space facilitated with the growth of a new freedom in many senses. In our maritime communities, borders are not barriers. And I think that is an important lesson for all of us to learn in 2015. I have just touched the surface. There's room for further study, both in Connecticut and the Caribbean. But I hope I have at least tickled your interest and encouraged further research. Thank you. <laughs>